Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Do you like what you do for a living? These things you see. You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I'm going to come inside five years. Not here. Now, they're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Body was found on Tuesday morning. I hate this city. We're going to get who did this. This will be the very definition of swift justice. There are two more bodies, two more victims. This guy is methodical, exacting, Worst of all, patient. He's laughing at us. He had a gun. He's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. Let's finish it. Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Seven from 1995. The studio was New Line Cinema, the release date September 22nd, 1995. The running time, 127 minutes, and of course it was rated R. The budget, $33 million, and the box office took in $100 million. That was domestic. It was the ninth-ranked movie of 1995, and then it made an additional $227 million internationally. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 81% fresh from 75 reviews. Their critics' consensus is a brutal, relentless, grimy shocker with tout performances, slick gore effects, and a haunting finale. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. 7. A dark, grisly, horrifying, and intelligent thriller may be too disturbing for many people, I imagine, although if you can bear to watch, you will see filmmaking of a high order. It tells the story of two detectives, one ready to retire, the other at the start of his career, and their attempts to capture a perverted serial killer who is using the seven deadly sins as his scenario. The look of Seven is crucial to its effect. This is a very dark film. The gloom often penetrated only by the flashlights of the detectives. 
Even when all the lights are turned on in the apartments of the victims, they cast only wan, hopeless pools of light. Although the time of the story is present, the set designs suggest the 1940s. Gary Weissner, the art director, goes for dark blacks and browns, deep shadows, lights of deep yellow, and a lot of dark wood furniture. And it rains almost all of the time. A movie like this is all style. The material by itself could have been handled in many ways, but the director, David Fincher, goes for an evocative atmosphere, and the writer, Andrew Kevin Walker, writes dialogue that for Morgan Freeman, in particular, is wise, informed, and poetic. Eventually, it becomes clear that the killer's sermon is being preached directly by the two policemen, and that in order to understand it, they may have to risk their lives and souls. Seven is well made in its details, and uncompromising in the way that it presents the disturbing details of the crimes. It is certainly not for the young or the sensitive. Good as it is, it misses greatness by not finding the right way to end. All of the pieces are in place, all of the characters are in position, and then... I think the way the story ends is too easy, satisfying perhaps, but not worthy of what has gone before. And that's the end of Ebert's review. <laughs> All right, so I've told this story in very early episodes of the podcast, but since I always give my initial memories of the films I cover, this story definitely bears repeating. So my memory of this movie will be forever tied to a date I had as a senior in high school. It wasn't a blind date, but it might as well have been, because I met this girl at a beach party a few weeks prior, and then finally we got together to go on a real date. And to be honest, I don't remember much about her doing to being throwing <laughs> drunk the night of the party, so I guess I made her laugh, and, and she suggested we go out, so out we went. So after getting something to eat and browsing a bookstore, we decided to go to a movie, and I let her pick the movie. And the conversation went something like this, her... You know, seven sounds really good. It might be a bit dark, but I'm okay with dark. How about seven? Me. Yeah, sure. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't get me wrong. This is a fabulous movie. It's just not a let's get to know each other date movie. The car ride home was completely silent. It was completely awkward. The first and last date. What in the box? Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> We would have been better off seeing Showgirls, which was out at the time, and I did see a few weeks later. That's a story. That's a great story, too. I could I could tell. I, I will tell that story. Okay, real quick. So we're watching Showgirls. I'm 17. And then all of a sudden, about maybe two-thirds of the way through the film, it starts to burn up. Literally, the film burned up, like in Gremlins. And we're all thinking it's part of the film because it's, the movie's so bad at that point. We were there just to see, you know... Um, Jesse Spano from Saved by the Bell completely nude. That's what we're there for. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I never got to see the end of Showgirls. I still have never seen the end of Showgirls because the, the film burnt up. So they give us free tickets and then we, we never went back. So maybe I should revisit some of these days. But I can pretty much guess what the outcome of that film would be. Anyway, I'm glad I saw Seven. Just... Um, Oh, that, that relationship was doomed at that point anyway, so whatever. All right, let's get into the main cast. You get Morgan Freeman, who plays Somerset. This goes without saying, you know, Freeman is one of the greatest actors of all time, and let's face it, with the exception of James Earl Jones, who would you rather hear doing voiceover work of any kind? You know, like many actors, Freeman started on stage, but his rise to fame started with the children's television show The Electric Company, which he appeared on for four years, though he did not enjoy his time on the show, likely because he felt he should have been doing more prestigious work. But you got to start somewhere. He once said that people would come up to him saying that he taught them how to read. 
And he would respond with, well, that is nice, but did I teach you to understand the words being read? Freeman would eventually have roles in films throughout the 70s and 80s, with one of his underrated performances being a street hustler in the 1987 film called Street Smart with Christopher Reeve. Freeman was nominated for an Oscar for his performance, but his breakout year film-wise was 1989, because he was in Lean On Me, Johnny Handsome, Glory, and Driving Miss Daisy. And then he kept the streak going with Unforgiven in 1991, and of course, The Shawshank Redemption in 1994 prior to Seven. Brad Pitt plays Mills. Now, by the time Seven came out, Pitt was still early on in his career, which began in the late 1980s with minor roles on television and film. He was probably first noticed by most filmgoers, including me, with his small role in Thelma and Louise with Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. He started to rise a bit with each subsequent role, like A River Runs Through It in California and True Romance, but his breakout was in 1994 with Interview with a Vampire and Legends of the Fall prior to Seven. Gwyneth Paltrow plays Tracy. Paltrow's career was even more early on than Pitt's by 1995, with her only real noticeable role being in 1993's Flesh and Bone with James Caan. Seven be one of her most early memorable roles, possibly due to, well, you know, I can't give that away, but you probably know. Paltrow and Pitt were dating at the time of Seven. They later broke up in 1997, and when she decided that she wasn't ready to be married. Also, if you didn't know, she is the daughter of actress Blythe Danner, and younger film fans might know Blythe Danner for playing Robert De Niro's wife in the Meet the Parents or the Fokker movies. Kevin Spacey plays, well, I can't get that away. <laughs> so, he's in the film, if you've seen the film, you know who he plays, and as for the most recent events regarding his personal life, yeah, it sort of makes sense of the roles he played over the years, and let's leave it at that. The director, David Fincher. Prior to Seven, Fincher was a well-regarded music video director. Let, let me give you a few of his most popular videos at the time. So, Paul Abdul, the straight-up video. Madonna, Express Yourself, and Vogue. He did the Aerosmith video for Janie's Got a Gun. Billy Idol for Cradle of Love. Just to name a few. He did a lot. Just look at his filmography. His film directorial debut was the third Alien movie in 1992, which he hated because he was the replacement director. Seven would really be his first movie that he had from the start. Okay, let's get into the film. So it begins with Detective Somerset, that's Morgan Freeman, on the scene of a murder. Somerset is soon to be retired, and he meets his eventual replacement, Detective Mills, played by Brad Pitt. Neighbors heard them screaming at each other like for two hours, it was nothing new. Then they heard the gun go off, both barrels. Crime of passion. Yeah. Just look at all the passion on that wall. Yeah, well, this is done deal all over the people. The kid see it? What? The kid. What kind of fucking question is that? You know, we are all going to be real glad when we get rid of you, Somerset. You know that? It's always these questions with you. Let the kids see it. Who gives a fuck? He's dead. His wife killed him. Anything else has nothing to do with us. Detective Somerset? I'm Detective Mills. Lieutenant, I apologize for interrupting you like this. Just get in town 20 minutes ago, they dumped me here. Look, um, Mills, 
I thought we might find a bar someplace, you know. Well, I'd like to get to the precinct, if it's all the same. You know, not much time for this transition thing. I meant to ask you something. When we spoke on the phone before? Yep. Why here? I don't follow. How long this effort to get transferred? It's the first question that popped into my head. I guess the same reasons as you. The same reasons you had before you decided to quit, yeah? You, you just met me. Maybe I'm not understanding the question. Very simple. You actually fought to get reassigned here. I've just never seen it done that way before. I thought I could do some good. Look, it would be great for me if we didn't start out kicking each other in the balls. <laughs> but you're calling the shots, Lieutenant. Yes. I want you to look and I want you to listen, okay? Now, I wasn't standing around guarding the Taco Bell. I've worked homicide five years. Not here. I understand that. Well, over the next seven days, Detective, you'll do me the favor of remembering that. So yeah, the film starts a bit tropey, because Somerset is the much wiser veteran who has seen everything. And then you have the young upstart, Mills, he's brash and thinks that not only does he know everything, but he can handle everything. And look, tropey doesn't mean bad, by the way. There are just certain story formulas that are tried and true, that's all. Now the original idea for the opening was to have Somerset on a train thinking about his life and what he's going to do when he retires. And there was another scene that was tied to the train scene where he's looking at some wallpaper for a house that was likely to be his retirement home. But they ran out of money to film the scene and it was cut. Now the actual opening credits look like they are straight from a Nine Inch Nails music video in, you know, in the early 90s. However, stylistic errors aside, much of the opening credits foreshadow the events to come in the film. You know, whether it be, you know, slicing off the top layer of skin on their fingertips, someone writing meticulous notes in a journal, developing pictures, and making collages. This is all going to come into play later. So Somerset is ready to retire in seven days. So we begin on Monday morning. Mills wakes up to get ready for work. He's married to Tracy, Gwyneth Paltrow. Mills meets Somerset at the scene of another murder, which is an absolutely disgusting crime scene. The house has no lights on, though the TV works, and it's absolutely filthy. This is likely a stylistic choice by the director because if the TV works, that means the electricity works, right? So why not turn on the lights instead of just using flashlights? Anyway, the dead man is very obese, and his feet and his hands are tied by wire with his face down in a bowl of spaghetti. Somerset is methodical when he investigates. He never misses a thing. While Mills is a talker, much to Somerset's annoyance, and even tells him to keep quiet. Mills feels like he put in his time and deserves his detective role and some respect, and he doesn't like being lectured by the elder statesman Somerset. However, respect and trust must be earned when you're Detective Somerset. He's been dead a long time, and I can tell you it was not poison. Oh, man. How does someone let this thing go like that? Took four orderlies just to get him on the table. Fat fuck ever fit out his front door. Please. It's obviously not a shut in. Now look at this. See how big this stomach is? And the strange thing is, it stretches. Here, look at the size of the cardiac orifice where the food. Wait, I see what you're pointing at, but that means nothing. Okay. He's got lines of distension across the duodenum, and the interior wall is ripped open. This man ate till he burst. He didn't really burst. 
not all away. He was hemorrhaging internally. And there was a hematoma in the rectus and the transverse abdominis muscle. So he did die by eating? Yes and no. What about these bruises up here? Well, I haven't figured that out yet. Gun pressed against his head? Pressed hard enough, sure. Fuck yeah. Marks from the front side flush with the muzzle. Ladies and gentlemen, we have ourselves a homicide. The autopsy doctor is played by Reggie Cathy, and you might remember him as one of the DJs in the movie Airheads, which I covered many episodes ago. Somerset and Mills meet with their captain, played by the great Arlie Emery, of course, from Full Metal Jacket, Sergeant Hartman. You owe me one jelly donut! So Somerset lays out the details of the murder. After the brief summation, Somerset requests to be reassigned. He doesn't want this to be his last case, as he feels it will drag on for a lengthy you know, period of time. Much longer than seven days. Somerset also suggests that this is not the right case for a young detective like Mills. The captain agrees and reassigns Mills. However, he leaves Somerset on the case, and as you can imagine, Mills is not happy with being reassigned. The next scene is Tuesday, and Mills arrives at, at yet another crime scene. While at the scene, Mills notices the TV, which is showing a press conference from the district attorney, played by Richard Roundtree. questions for 10 minutes and 10 minutes only if those questions do not come in a calm sane and orderly fashion i'm on my way out of here detective detective can i have a moment of your no. time i will not discuss the details of this ongoing investigation so don't even bother asking There is no conflict whatsoever, and any claim that there could be is irresponsible. Now, hold on. Let me address that. I've just come from a meeting of law enforcement officials, and they've assured me they have their very best men on this. This will be the very definition of swift justice. After the press conference, Mills notices that the word greed is written in blood on the carpet. The murder victim was a high-profile lawyer. Back at the station, the captain drops off evidence that was found in the first murder victim's stomach, pieces of plastic. Somerset decides to go back to the original crime scene to find out if he missed anything. He discovers markings on the floor near the refrigerator. He pulls out the fridge, and behind it, the word gluttony is written on the wall with a note underneath. 
found on the wall behind the refrigerator, the obesity murder scene. Long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to light. It's from Milton. Paradise Lost. All right, I'm confused. It means that this is beginning. This was found behind the same refrigerator, written in Greece. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony. Greed. Sloth. Wrath. Pride. Lust. And envy. Seven. Hold on. That's not even my death. You can expect five more of these. So as his intuition felt all along, Somerset knew this wasn't the case to end his career on. It was going to keep going, and it was not going to end well. However, he just can't let the case go either. And this leads to a montage where Somerset goes to the library after hours, and he wants to research past works of fiction like Dante's Inferno and The Earthly Paradise and Canterbury Tales to see if there's a connection with the murders. Mills is also working on the case, though he's no longer reassigned on it, but he's studying the actual crime scene photos and reports. Detective Somerset is very cerebral, and he's abstract with his investigation, while Mills is more literal. One method isn't necessarily better than the other per se, however, they need to use these tactics as a team and share their findings. We then cut to Wednesday. Somerset leaves his notes with Mills. Mills doesn't have the patience or the nuanced methods to understand what Somerset is giving him. There's a funny scene where an officer drops off a package of cliff notes of all the books that Somerset suggested that he read. Boy, that brings me back to high school. Phone. It's a package deal. Comes with the office. Mills? Are you okay? Something more? like to speak to you. Uh, this is Detective Somerset. Well, it's, it's nice to talk to you, too. I, I appreciate the offer, but... Well, in that case, I'd be delighted. Yes, thank you very much. Supper at your apartment. I accept. Uh, how's that? Tonight. This was the olive branch needed for the two detectives. Without Tracy, the partnership likely would have never happened. This is where we learn a bit more about the characters instead of the simply the murders going on. You know, Tracy and David were high school sweethearts, and their quote unquote kids are their two dogs. Why aren't you married, William? Oh, Trace. I was close once. 
next to nothing. It surprises me. It really does. Well, anyone who spends a significant amount of time with me finds me disagreeable. Just ask your husband. Very true. Very, very true. So how long have you lived here? Too long. How are you liking it? You know, takes time to settle in. Be good. Well, you get numb after a while. There are things to any city. Subway. It'll go away in a minute. Real estate guy. Fucking piece of. Sorry, on. Easy. Shows us the place a few times. I think he's good. He's efficient. Trace really likes it. Then I start wondering why will he only bring us here for five minutes at a time, yeah? We found out the first night. The soothing, relaxing, vibrating home. After dinner, Somerset and Mills go over the crime photos of the two murders trying to find a connection. Somerset surmises that the killer is preaching the atonement for these perceived sins and no fingerprints or witnesses for either murder. That night, Somerset and Mills visit the wife of, of the slain lawyer, the greed murder. At the original crime scene, her picture had two circles drawn around her eyes. The detectives understand this is a clue, but they haven't figured it out yet. They show the crime scene photos to the widow, and she notices that one of the paintings is upside down. So they go back to the apartment and discover the fingerprints on the wall behind the painting. The forensics team comes in, and the fingerprint pattern ends up displaying the words, Help me. There's a great scene which some might not notice unless you're really paying attention, but it's poignant to the character study of both detectives, not necessarily the plot per se. Somerset is talking about how often these investigations are an exercise in futility, one clue simply leads to more clues and never a resolution. But Mills is more idealistic. He gets like an adrenaline rush with every new clue because he believes they will lead to the killer. It's a simple but perfect scene showing the difference between a longtime veteran and a rookie. You met what you said, Mrs. School, didn't you? About catching this guy. Yeah. I wish I still thought the way you do. Why don't you tell me what the hell it is you think we're doing? Picking up the pieces. We're collecting all the evidence, taking all the pictures and samples, writing everything down, noting the time things happen. That's all? That's all. Putting everything in the neat little piles and filing it away. Only off chance it will ever be needed in the courtroom. Picking up diamonds on a deserted island. Saving them in case we get rescued. 
Even the most promising clues usually only lead to others. So many corpses roll away unrevenged. Don't try to tell me you didn't get that rush tonight. Let me show you. We're getting somewhere. Next, we cut to Thursday morning. The two detectives slept at the station because they were waiting for fingerprint results. The captain announces the fingerprints belong to a Theodore Allen, who goes by the name of Victor, and he has a long rap sheet of crimes. In a connection to other cases, Allen was represented by the lawyer, who was the second murder victim, the greed victim. Somerset and Mills, along with the SWAT team, go to apprehend Victor. What they discover is a decomposed body in bed, with hundreds of those little tree air fresheners hanging around from the ceiling, and the word sloth is written above the bed. But then we get some good old-fashioned movie jump scares. Jesus. Victor? What the hell? That's just Victor. Call an ambulance. The fuck is this? would be more like it. Also forensics. What's going on here, California, Sarge? get your people out of here. Come on now, go! No one touches anything! Some kind of friggin' wax sculpture or something. One year ago today. I got a hair sample, I got a stool sample, I got piss, I got fingernails. He's laughing at us. You got what you deserved. <coughs> He's alive! He's alive! He's alive! Emergency on that ambulance! <laughs> Yeah, that last scene is crazy. The skeleton of Victor wasn't even dead. <laughs> but even though he's still technically alive, he's a vegetable because he has almost no brain function and he bit off his tongue. The most torture one person could withstand and technically still be living. That night, Tracy calls Somerset asking if he will meet with her to talk. Somerset is kind of confused by the request, but the next morning, which is Friday, they have breakfast at a restaurant to talk. Can be a hard place. I don't know why I asked you to come. Why don't you talk to him about it? Tell him how you feel. I can't, you know, I can't be a burden, especially now. I'll get used to things, you know? I think I just, I wanted to talk to someone who's lived here for a long time. And I mean, upstate, you know, it's a completely different environment. Did David tell you that I teach fifth grade? Well, I did. Uh, he mentioned it. I've been going around, you know, looking at schools. But the conditions here 
are horrible. What about private schools? I don't know. Why don't you tell me what's really bothering you, Tracy? David and I are going to have a baby. Oh, Tracy. I don't think I'm the... I'm the one to talk to about this. I hate this city. I had a relationship once. It was very much like a marriage. We got pregnant. This was a long time ago. I remember getting up one morning and going to work. Just another day like any other, except it was the first day after I knew about pregnancy. And I felt this fear for the first time ever. I remember thinking, how can I bring a child into a world like this? How can, how can a person grow up with all this around them? I told her I didn't want to have it. And over the next few weeks, I wore her down. I want to have children. I can tell you now that I'm, I know, I mean, <laughs> I'm positive that I made the right decision. But there's not a day that passes that I don't wish that I made a different choice. If you don't keep the baby, I mean, if that's your decision, don't ever tell them that you'll be pregnant. But if you choose to have this baby, you spoil that kid every chance you get. That's about all the advice I can give you, Tracy. I got to go. William? That last scene is vital, and those have, that have seen the film understand why. It's also a brilliant but subtle acting job by both Freeman and Paltrow. When Freeman says the line, if you choose to have a child, you spoil that kid every chance you get, the camera is on Paltrow and her facial expression when he says spoil is so brilliant and real. You actually feel the emotion of the conversation in that moment. It's, it's really a terrific scene. Somerset decides to follow up on a lead from one of his contacts in the FBI to the frustration of Mills, who doesn't understand what Somerset is trying to accomplish. And then Somerset explains. All right. By telling you this, though, I'm trusting you more than I trust most people. I'm good, because I'm about ready to punch you. It's probably nothing, but even if it is, there's no skin off our teeth. The guy in the pizza parlor is a friend from the Bureau. 
who's stinky man? Same for years. The FBI has been up into the library system keeping records. Mm-hmm. Assessing fines. Monitoring reading habits. Look at Certain books are flagged. Books on, say, nuclear weapons and well, mind Kampf. Anyone who checks out a flag book has his library records fed into the FBI's computers from then on. Wait, wait, wait. How is this legal? Oh, that's what I mean. Only these terms don't apply. Oh, you, you can't use the information directly. It's just a useful guide. See, it might sound silly, but you can't get a library card without a, an ID in a current phone book. See? So they run a list, precisely. If you want to know who's reading Purgatory and Paradise Lost and Helter Skelter, the FBI's computers will tell us. Could give us a name. Could. Could get a name of some college kid writing a term paper on 20th century crime. At least you're out of the office. From the list, they get a name, Jonathan Doe. They go to his apartment, and they knock on the door, but there's no answer. A man down the hall sees them and then suddenly opens fire. Mills chases the man throughout the apartment building before it ends up on the city streets, and of course the rain is pouring down. Mills eventually corners the man, but is caught off guard when the man who is hiding above him hits Mills over the head. Mills loses his gun and he's totally dazed. The man holds up a gun to Mills' head as Somerset races to help him. The man decides not to shoot Mills and he flees. Mills, who is obviously running on adrenaline because he's bleeding badly from his forehead, wants to enter John Doe's apartment. Somerset pleads with Mills that they can't do that without a warrant. Plus, the only reason they know about John Doe in the first place is from the library information, which wasn't obtained legally. Mills, of course, is an act-now-think-later type of person, so he kicks open the door. After the police are called, they enter the apartment. So what's interesting is in 2001, now in the movie it's 1995, so the Patriot Act in 2001 gave the ability to the government to monitor library records. Something which at one point halfway through this film, which just happened, is stated not to be necessarily legal. Well, six years later it was. As with all the living quarters found in this film, the apartment is dark and it's disgusting. They find all sorts of things connecting John Doe to the previous murders. Specific tools used for torture, the Holy Bible, sedatives, Victor's severed hand in a jar, spaghetti sauce, the same found in the first victim's house. You see photographs of the victims, thousands of notebooks with pages and pages of very tiny handwritten notes for each deadly sin. And most disturbing for the detectives, pictures of them. John Doe was the photographer at one crime scene for Victor acting like a photojournalist. Also, his apartment has not one fingerprint in it. It's amazing. could use some more men here. Hey, man, I'm doing the best I can. What you get with all this? There are 2,000 notebooks on these shelves, and each notebook contains about 250 pages. Get it. Anything about the killings? What sick, ridiculous puppets we are, and what a gross little stage we dance on. What fun we have, dancing, fucking, not a care in the world, not knowing that we are nothing. We are not what was intended. Oh, wait, there's a lot more. On the subway today, a man came up to me to start a conversation. He made small talk, a lonely man talking about the weather and other things. I tried to be pleasant and accommodating, but my head began to hurt from his banality. I almost didn't notice it had happened, but I suddenly threw up all over him. He was not pleased, and I couldn't stop laughing. No dates. 
placed on the shelves of no discernible order. Just his mind poured out on paper. Looks like a life's work. John Doe decides to kind of toy with the detectives by phoning the apartment. Mills picks up, and John Doe basically tells him that he's surprised the detectives were smart enough to find him and that he's going to alter his plans. And then he hangs up. Now, if you watch the film after you've already seen it a few times, you know, you'll realize that if they hadn't been such good detectives, the eventual outcome may have been completely different. It's now Saturday. Another body is found, with lust carved into the door of the room with music blasting throughout. A female prostitute is found dead in bed with another man. He's living, and he's tied up across from the bed. You can hold aside. You never see this. Nothing strange. You saw nothing strange. No. No. He asked me if I was married. <laughs> and I, I could see he had a gun in his hand. Where was the girl? The what? What? The girl, the prostitute. Where was she? Someone comes to your establishment. They want to go downstairs. They want to get a little ooh-la-la. Whatever. They got to come to you. Yeah? Yeah. You didn't see anyone. With a package, a knapsack, something under their arm. Hey, everybody that comes in there has got a package under their arms. Some guys are carrying suitcases full of stuff. She was just, she was just sitting on the bed. <laughs> Who tied her down? You or him? Do you like what you do for a living? These things you see? No. No, I don't. But that's life, isn't it? He, he had a gun, and, and he made it happen. He made me do it. He, he, he put that thing on me. And, and, and he made me wear it. Then he, 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 he told me to fuck her. And I did. I, I fucked her. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. He had a gun in my mouth. The, the, the fucking gun was in my throat. Fuck! Oh, God. 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 Oh, please, please help me. Please, please help me. Now, I'd say the decision to never actually show the murders being committed was a stroke of genius by the filmmakers. You only see the aftermath. The reason this is brilliant is that often, you know, the suggestion of what is done is far creepier and more sinister than actually seeing it. If the filmmaker simply showed everything, it would just be another horror film. Those films all have their place, but this isn't a horror film. And really, the implied violence make this whole film much more terrifying than most horror films. For example, the Lust murder. During the interrogation, Somerset quickly shows a photo with a leather strap that has a blade at the end of it. The thought of John Doe making the man use that on the prostitute is horrifying. Just thinking about it is actually far worse than seeing it in many ways. 
Somerset and Mills stop at the bar for some drinks, and as usual, Somerset, with his experience, gives Mills his take on how this case is going to end. You know, this isn't going to have a happy ending. It's not possible. Hey, man, we catch him, I'll be happy enough. If we catch John Doe, and he turns out to be the devil, I mean, if he's Satan himself, that might live up to our expectations, but he's not the devil. He's just a man. You know, see, you bitch, and you complain, and you tell me these things, and these mean men. If you think you're preparing me for hard times, thank you, but... But you gotta be a, a hero. You wanna be a champion. Well, let me tell you, people don't want a champion. They wanna eat cheeseburgers, play the lotto, and watch television. Hey, how did you get like this? I wanna know. Well, it wasn't one thing, I can tell you that. Go on. I just don't think I can continue to live in a place that embraces and nurtures apathy as if it was a virtue. You know different, you know better. I didn't say I was different or better, I'm not. Hell, I sympathize, I, I sympathize completely. Apathy is a solution. I mean, it's, it's easier to lose yourself in drugs than it is to cope with yeah. life. It's easier to steal what you want than it is to, to earn it. Yeah. It's easier to beat a child than it is to raise it. Hell, love costs, it takes effort and work. We are talking about people who are mentally ill. We are talking about people who are fucking crazies. No, no, yes. we're not, no, no. Today. We're, we're, we're talking about everyday life here. We, you, you, you can't afford to be this naive. Fuck off. See, you, you should listen to yourself. Yeah. You say that the problem with people is that they don't care. So I don't care about people. It makes no sense. You know why? You, you care. You, you want to know? Damn right. And you're going to make a difference. Whatever. The point is, is that I don't think you're quitting because you believe these things you say. I don't. I think you want to believe them because you're quitting. You want me to agree with you and you want me to say, yeah, 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 you're right. It's all fucked up. It's a fucking mess. We should all go live in a fucking log cabin. But I won't. I won't say that. I don't agree with you. I do not. I can't. I'm gonna go home. Thank you, though. All right, it's now Sunday. John Doe has killed again. This time it's a female model with pride written in blood over her bed. 911, what's your emergency? Can you repeat that? I've gone and done it again. What do you got? Uh, sleeping pills. Glued to one hand. Telephone glued to the other. You see what he did? Sliced her up. And he bandaged. Call for help and you'll live. 
but you'll be disfigured. Or you can put yourself out of your own misery. Come on. Cut off her nose. Just bite her face. We did it very recently. Somerset has decided to stay on the case, at least a few days longer than his planned day to retire. And then they get a surprise. Listen, I've decided to stay on till this is done. I figure one of two things will happen. Either we'll get John Doe, or he'll finish his series of seven, and this case will go on for years. Hey, man, you don't have to do me any favors. Thank you, but... I'm requesting that you keep me on as your partner for a few more days. You'll be doing me a favor. You knew I'd tell you this. Hey, we're here. Wonderful. Your wife called before. Get yourself an answer machine. Detective. After this, I'm gone. Detective. No big surprise. Detective! You're looking for me. Hey! What's your fucking move? On the fucking floor. Get away from him! On the fucking floor! I know you. Now! Get out! Get down! On your stomach, you piece of shit! Now! All the way! All the way, fucker! Down! Faster! Faster! Faster, fucker! Now! Toes on the ground! Is this? I'd like to speak to my lawyer, please. God damn it! We finally see Kevin Spacey, and what a way to make an entrance into a film. As we find out many years later, there was probably a good reason why Spacey plays these characters so well, but that's an, another episode entirely. We discover the reason they can never find his fingerprints. It's because he'd been cutting off the skin off his fingers for a long time, making them untraceable just like the opening credits foreshadowed. His whole life has been a secret. He has no credit. He has nothing. Even his bank account is only five years old. All right, this is where, if you've never seen the film, all the twists are coming, and they're big twists. I remember being totally shocked when I first saw this film in the theater. Now, granted, I was only 17 at the time, and I hadn't seen too many thrillers like this, but it's still a shocking ending regardless. And here's the deal. There are two more victims left. Envy and Wrath, and I'll leave it at that. So I will play the famous car ride scene with Spacey, Freeman, and Pitt before the climax of the film because Spacey's performance is just brilliant. But I won't give away the ending. If you've seen the film, you already know it. And it's one of the most shocking, suspenseful, and well-put-together endings in film history. I don't agree with Roger Ebert's review. Who are you, John? Who are you, really? What do you mean? All I mean at this stage, what harm can it do to tell us a bit about yourself? It doesn't matter who I am. Who I am means absolutely nothing. You need to stay on your left up here. So where are we heading? You'll see. We're not just going to pick up two more dead bodies, are we, John? That wouldn't be shocking. We've got newspapers to think about, yeah? Wanting people to listen, you can't just tap them on the shoulder anymore. You have to hit them with a sledgehammer. 
And then you'll notice you've got their strict attention. But the question is, what makes you so special that people should listen? I'm not special. I've never been exceptional. This is, though, what I'm doing. My work. The work, Doc? Yes. See, I, I don't... I, I don't see anything special about it, John. That's not true. No, it is true. And the funny thing is, all this work... Two months from now, no one's gonna care. No one's gonna give a shit. No one's gonna remember. You can't see the whole complete act yet. But when this is done, when it's finished, it's going to be... People will barely be able to comprehend, but they won't be able to deny. Could the freak be any more vague? I mean, as far as master plans go, John. I can't wait for you to see. I really can't. It's really going to be something. Well, you know what? I'm going to be standing right next to you. So when this big thing happens, you be sure and let me know, because I wouldn't want to miss it. Oh, don't worry. You won't. You won't miss a thing. so exciting. It's not too far now. I've been trying to figure something in my head and maybe you can help me out, yeah? When a person is insane, as you clearly are, do you know that you're insane? Maybe you're just sitting around, reading guns and ammo, masturbating in your own feces. Do you just stop and go, Wow, it is amazing how fucking crazy I really am. Yeah? You guys do that? It's more comfortable for you to label me insane. It's very comfortable. It's not something I would expect you to accept. But I did not choose. I was chosen. Whatever. I don't doubt that you believe that, John. But it seems to me that you're overlooking the glaring contradiction. Meaning what? Glad you asked. If you were chosen, that is, by a higher power, if your hand was forced, it seems strange to me that you would get such enjoyment out of it. You enjoyed torturing those people. This doesn't seem in keeping with martyrdom, does it? John. I doubt I enjoyed it anymore. Then Detective Mills would enjoy time alone with me in a room without windows. Isn't that true? How happy would it make you to hurt me with impunity? That hurts my feelings. I would never... You wouldn't only because there's consequences. It's in those eyes of yours, though. Nothing wrong with a man taking pleasure in his work. I won't deny my own personal desire to turn each sin against the sinner. Wait a minute, I thought all you did was kill innocent people. Innocent? Is that supposed to be funny? An obese man 
A disgusting man who could barely stand up? A man who, if you saw him on the street, you'd point him out to your friends so that they could join you in mocking him? A man who, if you saw him while you were eating, you wouldn't be able to finish your meal? And after him, I picked the lawyer, and you both must have secretly been thanking me for that one. This is a man who dedicated his life to making money by lying with every breath that he could muster to keeping murderers and rapists on the streets. Murderers. A woman. Murderers, John, like a yourself. A woman. So ugly on the inside that she couldn't bear to go on living if she couldn't be beautiful on the outside. A, a drug dealer, a, a drug dealing pederast, actually. And let's not forget the disease spreading whore. Only in a world this shitty. Could you even try to say these were innocent people and keep a straight face? But that's the point. We see a deadly sin on every street corner, in every home, and we tolerate it. We tolerate it because it's coming. It's, it's trivial. We tolerate it morning, noon, and night. Well, not anymore. I'm setting the example. And what I've done is going to be puzzled over and studied and followed forever. Yeah. Delusions of grandeur. You should be thanking me. Why is that, John? Because you're going to be remembered after this. Realize, detective, the only reason that I'm here right now is that I wanted to be. No. No, we would have got you eventually. Oh, really? So, what were you doing? Biding your time? Toying with me? Allowing five innocent people to die until you felt like springing your trap? Tell me, what was the indisputable evidence you were going to use on me right before I walked up to you and put my hands in the air? John. Calm down. I seem to remember us knocking on your door. Oh, that's right. And I seem to remember breaking your face. You're only alive because I didn't kill you. Okay, sit back. I spared you. Sit back! Remember that, detective, every time you look in the mirror at that face of yours for the rest of your life. Or should I say, for the rest of what life sit I've back. allowed you to have. Sit back, you fucking freak! Shut your fucking mouth! You're no messiah. You're a, you're a movie of the week. You're a fucking t-shirt, at best. Don't ask me to pity those people. I don't mourn them any more than I do the thousands that died at Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that to say, John, that what you were doing was God's good work? The Lord works in mysterious ways. Do you see those high-tension towers? That's where we're at. Yeah, I see where he's talking about. But you're 9 o'clock and follow the access road. Command. And as great as Spacey is in the last scene, it's the eerie calmness from Morgan Freeman that kind of accentuates everything. He's got a calmness and a cautious tone, unlike the brash Brad Pitt character. All right, so is this a film for everyone? Not at all. But it's the type of film that bears repeat viewings because you will pick up the subtle hints from every viewing. And the acting is just top-notch, but definitely not a feel-good movie. 
nor a first date film for high schoolers. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, The world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. All right, some fun facts. Kevin Spacey was the first choice to play John Doe after he nailed his reading. However, his asking price was more than the budget allowed. But Brad Pitt really pushed to get him cast because they knew he was the guy to play John Doe. Originally, the producers intended that Kevin Spacey should receive top billing at the start of the movie. But Spacey insisted that his name not appear in the opening credits so as to surprise the audience with the identity of the killer. Now, here are some of the actors that were considered for the main cast. For the role of Detective Somerset, Al Pacino, he did City Hall instead. Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, and Harrison Ford. For Mills, Denzel Washington was said to be considered, but he thought it was too dark and evil, but he regretted it later. And man, he would have been stellar with Morgan Freeman as much as I like Brad Pitt. Sylvester Stallone was considered, Kevin Costner, and Nicolas Cage. For Tracy, Christina Applegate was considered, and for John Doe, Val Kilmer. The ending, which I'm still not going to tell you, was not what the studios wanted. No surprise there. Uh, however, it was in the original script that Fincher read, and that's what drew him to the film. When the studio said that that wasn't going to be the ending, Fincher kind of had Alien 3 flashbacks and almost bailed on 7. Brad Pitt also fought with Fincher to keep the original ending, and it stuck. David Fincher thought that Morgan Freeman would turn down the role, thinking he'd feel the film was too down market. But Freeman was actually the first one to eagerly join the cast. Fincher told Kevin Spacey and Brad Pitt, This is not going to be the movie that you're remembered for, but it may be a movie you're incredibly proud of. Brad Pitt said one of the reasons he took the role was to escape the cheese after Legends of the Fall. (laughs) Brad Pitt also bought his own ties for the movie. He wanted Mills to have a poor fashion sense. All right, we have two guests, frequent guests. We have frequent guest Bill Roseberry, who's always great, and then longtime guest. He was there from the beginning. He's heard my story, and if he hasn't, he's going to find it out now. And that's, of course, our friend Malin. Also, just a heads up, the interviews are a lot of fun, but I, if I recall, there are spoil, you know, spoilers that happen. So if you, don't, if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to find out what happens, uh, maybe watch the movie first, then go back and listen to the interviews. If you don't care, then you'll have a good time with it. I don't think we overtly <laughs> give away anything, but I don't really remember either. So <laughs> I'm just warning you. And I'll be back next week, and we'll talk about yet another random movie from my vast and diverse DVD collection. All right, we are back with Bill Roseberry. Welcome back, Bill. What's in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> oh, great. Brian? You just spoiled it. We got to start all over. <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting one. I already told everyone before we got to the interviews, look, there's going to be spoilers because usually I cut off, uh, uh, no pun intended, I cut off, you know, you giving out spoilers and everything. But uh, yeah, this one's going to be tough to talk about. Before we get into all this, did you well, actually, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I won't go into anything else than about it. So No, we should, we should because eventually we got to talk about it because it's one of the craziest endings ever ever at least especially at the time but we'll get there <laughs> that was that was just something that 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 uh, uh metal mike and i have done for years it was just like an on- ongoing joke because we're I, i'm not a uh i'm not a gwyneth paltrow fan by oh. any means. So for years for years i'd always said that this was her best acting performance right <laughs> and uh you know i i uh i haven't liked i finally I like Gwyneth Paltrow as Pepper Potts in the mm-hmm. Avengers movies and Iron Man, but I think it's because they're not 
shoving her down my throat is like this gorgeous, like she, she's the hottest thing in the world. I'm like, she's sure. I don't think she's that attractive. I never have. I always thought in, in outside of acting, she always came across as pretty pretentious to me. And mm-hmm. I just was not a fan. So, you know, up until Pepper Potts. And, so and I, the, I take it you're not going to buy one of her vagina candles from her uh, goop uh, website. No, no, okay. I didn't. I don't even know what that is. But again, that sounds like the pretentious bullshit that makes me want to. <laughs> well, there's. A, we're yeah. going to go off on a tangent here, but it's too All good right. not to talk about. There, supposedly <laughs> somebody in the UK won one of these Gwyneth Paltrow vagina candles, and it's supposed to quote unquote smell like you know what Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina, and they exploded. Oh and so they're trying to sue. <laughs> so, they, so it became this whole thing, and yeah, there's all, all sorts of jokes we could go there, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. Going back to this. One, how did how did you hear about this movie and did you see it in the theaters my god I, I it's been so long ago i mean i was 18 or 19 when this came out i believe i did see it in the theaters okay you know now that i'm thinking about it it's been so long though i can't remember i think i did see it in the theater now obviously at this point in brad pitt's career sure i wasn't like a big fan i i, I thought he was just you know pretty boy and and, you know, I mean, I, he was kind of the up and coming thing, but I absolutely adored Morgan Freeman by this point. You know, sure. he had done, you know, he had done glory. He had done Shawshank Redemption. Um, lean on me. Know, lean on me, which, you know, I didn't watch that until I was old. Mm-hmm. But, you know, glory and Shawshank Redemption were two movies that. I absolutely loved. He'd done Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, know? sure. He'd done, you know, really big time things that and, and become an icon by the time he did Seven. And Brad Pitt had come out of like, what had he done? Like Legends of the Fall. And Interview the with the Vampire. Louise. Interview with the Vampire was before this, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and I liked even that. I really did. Um, and matter of fact, if you want to be technical talking about Brad Pitt, as far as early performances, that might be his his best best one um mm-hmm. acting wise uh up till that point i think he evolved into a better actor as he got older um oh absolutely but he played up the part of mills in the seven perfectly he was young he's good looking he was cocky yeah he was like that loose cannon type of guy and it was it was perfect. He he did what he was supposed to do, but in some ways you didn't really, you liked Mills, but you didn't. You, you just kind of like, this guy's kind of a douche. He has everything, you know, mm-hmm. he's good looking. He's looked at life a little bit different than other people, you know, because everything was easy for him. Well, you that know? is the trope of the movie. I mean, that's, exactly. That's exactly. Uh, yeah. you have the young upstart who thinks he knows everything. You have Morgan Freeman who's seen everything and he's ready to just get out and retire and live a nice, quiet life. And of course, he can't because he's on the probably the biggest case he's ever been on. It's just that dichotomy between Freeman and Pitt. Yeah, was uh, was so great. So stylistically, this film is uh, it, well, the subject matter is incredibly dark, but the way it was shot, it almost feels well, when I was watching, I'm like, this seems like a music video. And uh, as it turns out, David Fincher, who directed was a music. He was basically known as a music video director. Uh, he did like Janie's Got a Gun, which is similar <laughs> in, in darkness and tone. How did you feel about that? And did it do you think it lent uh, better towards this type of uh, story? It really did. I, I thought that the way it was shot, like you said, was so dark. You know what it kind of reminded me of? And 
And mm-hmm. Mike, when I rewatched this here recently, uh, Mike watched it with me, and uh, uh, we had a discussion about this, and and we looked at it as it was almost like a a Gotham City backdrop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this. Yep. That's what I see when I see it. it. It reminds me of Gotham City. Like I'm waiting for Batman to like drop in and kick some people's asses or something. Oh, I agree. Like, I agree. It's always raining and it's a dark atmosphere the whole time. And 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 I don't know where they're trying to get at to where it's at. Is it in real life? Is it is it Seattle? It's I mean it's always raining and stuff. But then they're in the <laughs> desert at, later right. on. And I mean it 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 doesn't really fit. The uh, it's definitely a fictional place, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's got more like I've always looked at it. I see the the music video side of things, like you were saying, but too. But I kind of always see Gotham City. Sure, and that that totally makes sense. And what's also interesting about this film is one of the most important characters is obviously the the person they're trying to catch that's committing all these murders, and you don't actually see this character until basically the end of the film, which is crazy. But once you get Kevin Spacey, spoiler, uh, yeah. it is. I can't think of a better person to play this type of role. I mean, it's almost like, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter and, and, uh, and you know, uh, Anthony Hopkins, you know? No, he was, he was amazing um, for the short time, you know, that he was in it. And, and to be honest, he wasn't your big name guy at this point. No. I mean, you know, he hadn't done a whole lot. This movie kind of helped get him on the map. I know the same year usual suspects came out. Mm-hmm. But I don't know which one came out first. I think Seven did. And Usual Suspects was a movie that kind of... That's a cult classic, kind of. Got more of a cult classic. Yeah, it didn't didn't come right out as a top box office smash. Like Seven did. Seven was popular Absolutely. immediately. I mean, everybody was fu- was excited about this, this movie. There was a lot of buzz around it. He was in Glengarry Glen Ross, but again, not a he huge... Was yeah. Right. But he was a, a secondary role in that. Exactly. He was in uh, the ref. He was in the ref with yeah. Dennis Leary and he, and yeah. he was in uh see no hear no evil. Is it hear no evil, see no evil or see no evil, hear no evil. <laughs> That's right. With, uh, I always get confused. I have this movie too. Pryor. I do too. With yeah. Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. He yeah. was in that also. Um, but he hadn't been, you know, somebody that, uh, that was probably a household name yet. I, I would say seven and then usual suspects put him on that trajectory to where totally. he was before he started becoming a leading man. Yeah. Cause then LA confidential came and then of course right. his huge, uh, where he became a super American, American beauty. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great, I own both of those movies, LA confidential and American beauty. Great. But with but Kevin anyway, Spacey, yeah. talking about foreshadowing, because he basically turned out in real life to be that sort of creep, <laughs> you know? Right, <laughs> right. Well, I don't know if, I mean, yeah, creep, I don't know quite as bad of a creep as he was in this movie as, as John Doe, but... Uh, I, I would, yeah. who knows? Don't know we don't know. Far, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, but definitely not, not a good creep. guy. Yeah. No, yeah. not a good guy at all. And obviously, he's not He's not getting any work now, which... Uh, no, and uh, rightfully so, if, if what... Right what he's been accused of is absolutely true. Okay. Yeah. So the elephant in the room, you're, you're watching the movie. I, I didn't see any of this coming when I first saw it. Now I was a senior in high school at the time. So maybe I wasn't, uh, uh, fully grasped, but I was immersed in this film. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know anything about going in. So once I saw it, I was, I was all in. And then once the, the outcome happens, um, I didn't see it coming at all. Did you? No, I did not. I had no clue. I mean, I same thing. You were a senior in high school. I was a freshman yeah. in college. So there you go. I mean, mm-hmm. we're only a year apart 
So, yep. yeah, I mean, I, I didn't see it coming at all. I mean, I was trying to figure out where, because we hadn't seen Wrath yet, and we hadn't seen um, um, Envy. Oh, okay. That we were waiting for at that yep. point. What, it, was a, it goes through, you know, the, uh, you had, you know, the first one was, was uh, Gluttony, I guess. Because mm-hmm. that was the overweight guy that was eating Thanks. the shavings behind the, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that was creepy. Oh yeah, there's so. just a, there's more implied disgustingness than actual visual. That's actually a good point because you don't actually don't see much violence in this film. It's all implied, you know. It's you know that like when uh, the sex toy that was used, like yeah, yeah. Just thinking about it is more disturbing than actual seeing it. You know, it is. I mean, and that's kind of interesting thing about this movie. This movie is very creepy, and it but it almost it gets your imagination going because I, I get kind of creeped out by this movie where like, you know, if I, if I watched it and then was like, you know, here by, you know, by myself or whatever, <laughs> I'd probably be a little, you know, <laughs> turn you know, on the light. Yeah. yeah. Be like, Oh, you know, it, it, I'm a little jumpy, you know I mean? Sure. It, it just, it's that type of movie. It just gives you that feel, but, but you're right. It's not doing it. It's doing it through you making your imagination. They're building this picture for you to put into your mind of stuff that's going on. Right. You know, you never you never do see any violence whatsoever, really, in this movie. No, it's always the outcome. You know, I mean, obviously seeing the you know, the the decrepit, you know, what happened in the scene, those are not great to see. But the actual action doesn't happen. It's all happening in your mind. Like the one sloth. Yep. Where John C. McGinley is there is the cop? I forgot he was in it too till I rewatched. Yeah, it. John C. McGinley is the cop. They go in. They think they've caught John Doe here, and they go in, and that guy is just so skinny, laying in the bed, and he's down there, and you think oh, he's dead. Yeah. And John C. McGinley puts his head down there, and the guy raises up and coughs. Oh, so good. So oh scary. my god, it makes me want to shit my pants. Even though I know it's coming now, the first time though, yeah, I screamed. Uh, you know, when I saw that. And and like I said, if I remember right now that you bring it up, I think I did see this in the theater. It's got okay. it's been so long. I've seen this movie probably a dozen times or more in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen this movie so many times. Well, um, I tell you, this is where I, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that the technology of DVDs came out because, you know, videos were so expensive. Uh, VHS videos, you weren't going to buy them. You might tape them off cable or something like that or dub them. But uh, I, this probably wouldn't have been a movie I would have purchased on VHS, but on DVD, absolutely. Like it was just, I, I think our collections all expanded because of DVDs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I my collection is humongous. I don't know what you have. I think I have. We're probably comparable. I have over 700. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, We're it's probably pushing 800 now. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, this is one that I've had for years. I would say it's one of my earlier uh, movies in my collection, truthfully, is seven. Yeah. Yeah, and uh-huh. I had one where it was like a double-sided disc where like after like it was two halves like on this like it was that it was one of the first DVDs I think that were produced uh because they definitely don't do that anymore. Another thing that that's cool for for guys in my area here in the St. Louis area with 7 is it kind of put a band on the map. So David Fincher had used obviously some 9-inch nails sure. stuff. They used a lot of that industrial music, which added to the creepiness of the the Agreed. soundtrack. Added to the creepiness of of the whole thing, and they but they used uh, Nine Inch Nails a lot. But then they used this band called Gravity Kills, mm-hmm. 
And uh, I don't know if you follow the our Metal Mike group page much, but I did. Um, after I rewatch this movie, I do a thing called Track of the Day mm-hmm. every day that we then use as our first block every week on the show. I find music videos or live live performances or or music videos of a particular song, and I break down that song and call it Track of the Day and do that every day. Well, I did the song Guilty by Gravity Kills, mm-hmm. which was one of the main songs on the soundtrack for Seven. Um, they they uh, they used in there and put this band on the map from from St. Louis. But the the video I used the actual video that, for the song, not a live performance, and it was from MTV's 120 Minutes with Matt Penfield. If you yeah, the alternative of that. show. Yeah, right. And Matt Penfield is is you know given an introduction for the video, and he talks about Gravity Kills being from St. Louis and how they had been featured. This song had been featured. For the soundtrack for the hit movie seven mm-hmm. which was just coming out and, you know was set all the buzz around the movie and it kind of helped promote this band they were short-lived but most of their fame came from david fincher using that song on the soundtrack for seven. right and that's that's kind of a lost art now because uh pretty much movies are only using tried and true hits at this point which is a shame because the right the 80s and 90s were like you know great fodder for for new bands basically to make it big just because of a movie you know or a soundtrack i mean i like i said i thought his use of that industrial music for this movie fit it perfectly oh i agree yeah definitely it, it added it, to the creepiness vibe, you can even yeah. say the same thing with like the crow soundtrack there was some industrial and some yes. alternative there so maybe that was like a blueprint because that came out a few years prior to seven so that makes sense but i right. definitely think david fincher's background in music videos uh definitely lent a, a certain style and i i think it totally worked in in this film so you just rewatched it not too long ago what are some of the takeaways uh from your latest viewing uh that you have <laughs> I mean, you know, probably the biggest thing I touched on it earlier is is I think how much Brad Pitt has grown as an actor when I watched this movie, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, and like I said, as much as I like I did I do like him in 7, I like his performance, but I just feel like, you know, he was one of those guys that got he became a movie star because he was ridiculously good looking, you know, sure. and women loved him. And he evolved his his art form as he moved forward because he he could act circles around Mills. Now he he could be he could be Somerset today, you know. I think, and that's and funny. I know. That. Yeah, I mean, and 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 Morgan Freeman was just so perfect, you know. And I don't know. Like I said, I've seen it so many times. I pretty much know what's coming all the mm-hmm. time. I mean, I even and I'll, I, this is interesting. I picked up on this. I maybe not the first time I saw it. No, no, I did because I maybe I didn't. Maybe Usual Suspects had come out before this because I think I had seen maybe seen Usual Suspects first because I recognized Kevin Spacey's voice on the phone. Okay, okay, I remember that. I mean, uh, I I said that's you know I I recognized his voice because I do remember that at the time. Mm-hmm. So I mean, like I said, Kevin Spacey wasn't a a huge deal at that point, but I, no. I knew who he was. That was something that I remember standing out that when he called him on the phone, I knew that he was going to be John Doe. Right. Right. Well, so, it's, it, going back to Brad Pitt, I, I think 
he turned into kind of the modern Robert Redford. I think Redford didn't get his just due in the beginning because he people thought he was just the pretty boy, the golden boy. Uh, the serious actor was Paul Newman, even though Paul Newman was a good mm-hmm. old guy, too. Um, and then I, I think Rob Lowe always got a stigma of just being a, a pretty boy, but I think he's turned into a, a really good actor as well. So I think sometimes yeah. you just need to develop at some point. Hey, I wouldn't. I didn't think of Rob Lowe in there, but you're you're absolutely right. It's funny that you do the Brad Pitt Robert Redford comparison because that's what my mom has always said. Sure, she saw him as Robert Redford even back then, and that's why I, a, a movie that I own. Um, I don't know if you have this Spy Game, mm. which is Robert Redford and Brad Pitt together. Oh, yeah, um, I have seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wonder- great, and it's yeah. kind of interesting to see those two on screen together because spy game came out roughly around the same time, mid mid nineties, late nineties. And, uh, you know, so he's still that young, good looking guy and he's a CIA agent under Robert Redford and yeah. Robert Redford's an aging guy. And yeah, it's, it, it was interesting to see those two together. Cause I, I definitely see that too. I've always seen, I've always compared Brad Pitt to Robert Redford and I've compared, Tom Hanks to Jimmy Stewart. Oh, I got those were my those were my comparisons from from my you know era of active actors to the previous era. Yeah, I think that's a great. I think uh, James James Stewart, Gregory Peck, I think would be a good one with uh, Tom Hanks as well. Yeah, that kind of uh, they're just like like gentlemen, like everyone just likes them. They just they're always great in whatever they're in. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so. All right. Well, this has been great. Uh, obviously, you'd, you'd recommend this movie, even though it is dark. And uh, I think you do. I, it does bear repeat viewing. So even though you might know what happens, you're going to pick up on certain things. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely worth viewing again because you you'll notice things, you know, when you when you watch it a second time, uh, you know, and kind of know things are coming. So you can kind of pay attention to other parts to help you solve the case and everything, because there's a lot of variables you know as you're looking at things um i don't think i don't think however many times you'll watch it you'll really ever pick up any type of um clues of what's going to be the ending though right right and so that's that's the fun part too yeah i've never seen a clue saying oh well that's telling me where you know some other movies as you rewatch them, you see the clue, like a movie, like a, a usual suspect sure. or another one of my favorites like this was fallen with Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first line of the movie is kind of a, a, a you know, giveaway to, to the f- ending of the movie. I mean, there's, there's a lot of movies like that, that they give you hints. And then when you yeah. rewatch it, you're like, damn it, why didn't I see that? You know, but seven doesn't necessarily do that. Right. It just goes through and just has a lot of plot twists. What I will say, if you're going to watch this movie, um, maybe watch it with, with a friend or maybe leave the lights on while you're watching it or you <laughs> might get a little creeped out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah especially <laughs> if this is not your, by design, your type of, uh, type of film. <laughs> right. As always, thank you so much, Bill. No problem, man. Okay, we are back with Malin. Welcome back, Malin. Hey, Brian. Always a blast to talk to you. Thanks for having me back. Of course. And so we were joking before uh, we started to record this is that we were having a nice conversation about our lives and everything. And then it was time to kind of turn this, you know, flip the switch. And now we're going to talk about arguably one of the darkest movies around. And and that is Seven from 1995. Uh, When you first. So did you hear about this like through the trailer or something like that? And did you immediately 
did this interest you or was it something like, oh, I like Morgan Freeman or Brad Pitt or whoever. And, and that's that's what drew you to this film initially. You know, I was thinking about this just today. I can't remember exactly what drew me to go and see this film in the mm-hmm. theater. I saw it shortly after it opened. I do know mm-hmm. that. And I did not see what was coming down the pike at, at me. Right. I, so I do remember that. I remember that. I remember being shocked by it. I, I don't remember what about it attracted it attracted me to it at the time because I I knew who Morgan Freeman was. I knew who Brad Pitt were. I like them both. Um, maybe that's what it was. And you know, it's 1995. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking this is right after right right after I graduated from high school. Right. And the only way would, I would have known about movies was by checking the newspaper. So I probably right. just read like a very short paragraph about it. I doubt I saw a trailer. I really doubt that I saw a trailer. I think I just saw it in the newspaper and went and saw it. It was probably a convenient time. I don't think that I knew much more than that because I know I had no idea what I was seeing at the time. I Which is probably the best way to see this film. Totally. I would. I don't think I... <laughs> I eventually would have seen it, but uh, and I've already told this on the podcast, but I'll, I'll tell you. But my this was kind of like a, a it was like a second date, and so the, the girl I was with, she she's the one that picked it, and so I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. And again, I yeah, like you, I had no idea what I was getting yeah. into, and I, I loved it, but it was just like, oh, talk about an yeah. awkward ride home <laughs> for someone you just right. met. So. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I apologize because I know you said you just mentioned this on the podcast, but you haven't yeah. mentioned it to me. So no. second date, that sounds optimistic. That sounds like might be going somewhere. However, was this your last date? <laughs> it pretty much was. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we'll get into the to the ending because I've already warned everyone there's going to be spoilers because how could you not talk about the, the ending? But uh, yeah, it, we, it was completely silent on the way home. Like it was the oh, it was no. it was just like, wh- where do you go from there? And I'm it, I'm a senior in high school, so I'm, you know, yeah. s- 17 at the time. And yeah, I, w- I you know, it's probably one of the heaviest movies I had seen in a theater at that point in my life, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, but again, going back I'll to the, you it's, no, I'll go ahead. That film destroyed a lot of virgin ships. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, but I, going back to like just showing up to the theater and just kind of picking movies, I miss those days because, you know, now you like, can, you can see everything on your phone before you even, you know, you know, trailer wise before you even go there. But yeah, like you said, if you didn't see in the paper, if you didn't happen to catch a television commercial, you just kind of show up to the theater and just maybe randomly pick a movie. And I, that, I kind of miss those days. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Forever. And now during COVID, it's like, when are we ever going to have the chance for that again I know. in the near future? Like, it just seems so far away. I guess yeah. I'm, I'm getting impatient for um, movie theaters and live performance theaters. Um, not impatient. Like I'm, I'm more ready to wait it out, but, you know, anxious and hopeful. Oh, totally. So this is, uh, so we, we get into this and, and this is, David Fincher's second film, David Fincher's the director, he was best known pretty much for his music videos. Um, his first film was Alien 3. So this is, you know, which didn't do that well. So he, it's kind of interesting because this kind of, it kind of reminds you of some other, you know, filmmakers, whether it be, God, is one of your favorite filmmakers, actually. Um, yeah. Are you thinking of David Lynch? I'm thinking of David Lynch. And so and yeah. maybe it's because they both share the same name, uh, first name that uh yeah it's got that that kind of darkness to it but um 
how, yeah, did you? It, it is almost like a, a music video type feel in many ways, just the way it's shot. Did you feel that when you first saw it? When I first saw it, I think like everyone, I was definitely taken by the opening credits, which absolutely have that like music video feel. And a music and at that time, those opening credits they felt really like fresh and new and something I hadn't seen before. Right. At least I hadn't seen before. And that was pretty exciting. I was, you know, really sucked into the movie from uh, from that Nine Inch Nails song and all of mm-hmm. the uh, the graphic credits. That definitely does. I don't know. I mean, I think that's a good question. I don't know about the rest of the movie. I'm not familiar with any of David Fincher's music video work. I'm familiar with some of his other film work, but I can't really relate to his music videos. Um, the one thing I did think that was interesting about the way that the movie was made, and it's not, not a, connected to music videos, but it's the way that I kind of felt it was that it, it felt a bit like Blade Runner the mm. first time I saw it, you know, because it's, it's, it's uh, that kind of dark take on a metropolitan city uh, where you can't, I don't remember being able to figure out like exactly like what time it was supposed to be taking place in or what city it was even supposed to be. And it's just constantly raining and grimy and felt horrible and kind of um, gritty and kind of nasty and kind of stuck in the past and kind of stuck in the future and all of that. Right. So I remember when I first saw it feeling kind of like it, a connection there somehow. Mm-hmm. Just in I, terms of the way it looked and felt and was filmed. Right, right. And you actually, because I'm doing a quick search of uh, David Fincher's music videos, I'm sure you saw a lot of these. We did a bunch of Madonna videos in the late 80s. So Express Yourself, Vogue. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Vogue. And, I know that one. <laughs> absolutely. You did Aerosmith's Janie, Janie's Got a Gun, which I remember being very popular. Uh, you did a lot of Paul Abdul ones as, as well. Wow. So, yeah, like straight wow. up and, and, and everything. So, yeah, so he he was very successful as as a video director, but I guess... I, well, you eventually had to morph into a film director because now you don't even see music videos anymore, at least on television. They're they're still on YouTube. But uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Interesting. Now, plot wise, did did the plot immediately draw you in where you like, oh, OK, this is this is different than your than your typical detective story? You know, I think that what distracted me the first time I saw it was the, um, the really stylistic murders. Like mm. those are kind of distracting. Like other than that it kind of begins off like a fairly typical, like buddy cop film. Mm-hmm. Like they don't have a great relationship, but then what buddy cop film does start off with, you know, them having a great relationship. That's, you know, the joy of those, you see how they, you know, work a friendship up, um, uh, through their common adventures or misadventures. I hadn't seen anything with like murder sequences or like, um, crime scenes, forensic kind of crime scenes that were like that stylistic and, kind of brutal and graphic. Um, so that stood out. Yeah. And I think you're, you're, you'd kind of nailed it that the old trope of like retiring cop, um, arrogant yeah. young cop, they totally fit the, those role well in the roles. Well, and then eventually I think Brad Pitt starts to kind of figure it out, but that's what, that's actually one interesting about this movie is as much as he sort sort of learns from, from Morgan Freeman's wisdom. Um, ultimately it's, it's, um, it's the youth and inexperience of Brad Pitt that does him in at the end. Yeah, he stays a bad cop. 
Yeah. I mean, he was a bad cop the entire way through the film. Mm-hmm. And he was even kind of not a great husband. <laughs> it was no. not a great, like, <laughs> he wasn't doing a lot right. You know, and no. they make it, they, they do a good job of like, making that pretty clear <laughs> in the film that he's just kind of like, uh, yeah, not, you know, kind of struggling on all fronts. But Brad Pitt plays that perfectly. I mean, he's got, he, yeah. he, he plays it well where you, you get that character. Um, and, but, and again, this doesn't work without Morgan Freeman because Morgan Freeman holds this all together. Yeah. It's amazing. And considering how cool, calm and collected Morgan Freeman is throughout pretty much the entire film, he doesn't give away a lot in his no. performance. He does a really good, but really pretty minimal performance in a film that's really doing a lot is kind of spectacular in a lot of different ways uh in terms of like the graphicness of the violence um the excitement of some of the chase stuff um as well as in the complete 360 of you know audience and narrative expectations by the time we get to the end of the film i think without him playing it kind of so low-key it would have probably been harder to take the film uh seriously by the end so that Mm -hmm. you know it has that kind of uh emotional and psychological payoff if you played it up at all you know suspend this belief and you know faith in the film at all and probably wouldn't take Mm -hmm. it very seriously or be you know have the potential to be that impacted by the the end of it which gives i think um to your point i think gives brad pitt uh a bit more space Mm-hmm. to act it up a little bit and yeah you know it the, the contrast between those two characters it's it's really good i mean it's really really brilliant they, it, in any film that that kind of chemistry and contrast between characters i imagine would work brilliantly like that is something that this that they do in this film so so very well and mm-hmm. it's really fun to watch and that is entertaining to watch Oh yeah, and I, I'm not a big fan of prequels or, or and things like that. But I I, uh, I was fascinated with I, I would have been fascinated with getting into more of the backstory, which they couldn't do, uh, of Somerset. Of like, how did he get the way he is, and why is he? Um, yeah. Why didn't he want this case at the end? Because he knew, you know, he was kind of foreshadowing like this isn't going to end well. And even from the beginning, he he kind of knew oh, it's yeah. not going to end well. But even he couldn't have predicted how not well if everything ended up. Um, so we might as well <laughs> fast forward to the end. Did you have any idea this was coming? Because I would like nope. to say it was smart and everything, and, and I could see it coming. I didn't. So, yeah. No, I know. I, I did not. I, I was just out of high school. I didn't know what was coming tomorrow, next week, <laughs> next month at that point in my life. Right. I did not see this coming. I, 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 had, I had not seen anything that um, prepared me for that type of... Um, 360 and honestly i probably at that point wasn't even familiar enough with the noir mm-hmm. and um buddy cop conventions to even understand you know how i had already become comfortable with certain norms like the you know the lethal weapon for example sure. body dynamics to, so that when this takes all of that turns it on its head, then slits its throat and then waits <laughs> to see if the audience applauds. Right. You know, uh, I, I wasn't ready for that. I was totally taken aback and um, sucker punched by it. But I think, I think I just 
I really ended up liking the film for that, for that kind of that roller coaster experience. Um, and I, I, I suspect that um, it was liked by as many as it was just because it did some things that were very kind of shocking and brave at the time. Yeah. And I understand that they um, had to fight to keep this ending. It's, uh, and the funny thing about that is that I could easily see this film have, uh, having been manipulated by um, a studio to have a much different ending. Like this sure. is the type of ending that you would see in like the nineties, you would get like a laser disc of like a criterion collection film. Mm-hmm. So you could see the European ending right. of a film and it, this would be the European ending and the American ending would be, um, I don't even know what it would be, but it would not probably have ended with, um, uh, you know, Brad Pitt getting, you know, taken away to right. uncertain, but uh, uncertain, but certainly um, dismal future. They actually went there. That's why I think, again, if they didn't go there, this wouldn't have been a memorable film. It would just been another movie. It was very almost 1970s because the 1970s would do things like yeah. this uh, for, for film. And I think that's that's why it works. And uh, yeah, as shocking as it is, as unsettling it is, as to your point, it made me want to go back eventually and uh, and watch it. Now, granted, this is back in the day. I, I don't think I went back to the theater to watch it, but I did rent it once it eventually came out, probably about a year later. And then I wanted to try to pick up on the clues. And, and that's what's fun about movies like this, if you want to call it fun, is, is can yeah. are there any hints that you could have seen coming? Absolutely, there are. And I saw them this time. Now, mm. I should say that I, I just recently rewatched it. I know you and I last yeah. spoke a few months ago, and we talked about maybe uh, talking about Seven. And so I rewatched it. Okay. And I, I did see hints. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a... And they're they're not even necessarily like Agatha Christie hints, <laughs> where you know if you figure out like who was in the room at what time and you know who had the motive and this is that and the other, you can figure out who the killer is. Now because the killer is kind of this random John Doe, right? It's a name, so you know you don't have a chance to do that kind of like audience detective work. Um, but that's not the point of the film. However, there were there are a lot of little like foreshadowing clues and hints. And like inside, um, maybe uh, jabs that aren't even really necessarily meant to be, I suspect, picked up consciously by the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some, I think, kind of s- things that are meant to be a bit more subliminal nods towards where the film is going. On the other hand, there are also some pretty full of conversations that say exactly what's going to happen at the end at mm-hmm. one point in the film. Morgan Freeman looks at Brad Pitt and he says, I mean, you alluded to this earlier, this is not going to have a happy ending. Right. Uh, you know, and in a sense, I think that's there to prepare the audience. You know, this might not be, you know, the type of film that you walk out and say, oh, I didn't like it because it didn't have a happy ending. Right. You remember the days when like you'd walk out of any film and the conversation was, oh, it didn't have a happy ending or oh, I like the happy ending, blah, blah, blah. Um, that was my childhood anyway. Right. Um, no, to- it totally but, was. But they're really fair about it. You know, they've written it into the script. Yeah. This is not going to have a happy ending. And I think, if I remember correctly, you know, they discuss a little bit in fairly vague terms about, you know, why it isn't and how it isn't. And, you know, that's that should be kind of a, a primer for the audience. Um, and they do, a, I think there were a couple of conversations like that. 
some of the more subliminal stuff, one of my favorite things that I mm-hmm. suspect is kind of a subliminal nod, um, I have no way of knowing if this is true, but there are a couple of shots when Tracy first meets uh, Somerset mm-hmm. that I think might be kind of clever nods towards where the film is going, mm. um, but it's doing a couple of things. So if you get a chance to watch this mm-hmm. uh, again, um, when she invites Somerset over for dinner, notice that after she lets him in, she goes into the kitchen. And the way that that's framed is she's talking to him from the kitchen through a rectangular opening into the mm. dining room. And she's boxed off in a oh. separate <laughs> space. Oh. I, it might just be because I'm watching it again. I, and and my, my brain knows where things are going. And I'm so sure I'm like on some level, I'm looking for, you know, or receptive to that kind of thing. But I think, thought that was kind of interesting that we would first meet her and hear her speak from a distance framed in a rectangle within a rectangle, right? So there's the frame of the movie, um, uh, the movie frame, and then there's her framed in that kitchen uh, counter cutout. And she's Mm -hmm. just kind of like extreme talking. Then she finally comes in, she introduces herself to him and, you know, they, begin to build a rapport and she becomes a person a character um and i thought i kind of wonder if that was intentional but like i say no way of knowing i suspect that that's since uh, i understand that they uh storyboarded the film so that scene i suspect was storyboarded so i I kind of think I'm not totally on the wrong track about it, but no, I, I, this is type of, this is why they do film study classes just so you could pick up on (laughs) on things like this. And I, I love it. What I, I, I totally missed that. So I want to go back and watch, but that, that totally makes sense. Cause I think, I think directors want to do things like that, whether, uh, you know, people like us pick up on it or not is if we, if we do great, but if not, they, they do it from themselves to keep them amused too. A lot of the times. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to say that my first, my first viewing of the film, um, I always thought that Tracy was like this distant kind of side character and she never was really a presence for me. And that like distancing in the kitchen, like she's always, always felt, she seemed to me really in the distance. And I, I know that I came to the end of the film the first time I saw it. I barely remember that she was even in the movie. Not mm. that she's a bad actress. No. Not that she was not making a suitable presence in the film when she was on screen. But um, I think this is to the credit of the screenwriter and the director that they managed that manipulation such that I didn't see it coming. Right. I didn't notice that, that, that the stakes included that character that character's life and that character at all i she really just seemed in the background to me completely mm-hmm. and i think maybe by manipulating you know the way that she engages with characters and in space and how much she gets screen time she gets you know she's in that one scene yeah you know, she starts off distant in the kitchen and then for much of the movie she's mentioned um as this off-screen character by brad pitt but she gets next to zero screen time totally and I remember that in the theater too. Like you, you totally forget about her. And I think that that it maybe it made it made it easier for the like the, almost the, I don't want to call it a gotcha moment, but yeah, like you you have to bring yeah. it back somehow. And that was a perfect way to do it. 
Yeah, they did. They they did a good job on that too. Um, also, yeah, there there were a couple other things I noticed about them setting up the gotcha moment, but mm-hmm. um, uh, just in in general, I think they did a good, really good job of uh, not letting her shine too much beyond the scenes that she was in. Like, uh, she was mm-hmm. really good. And I think if they they had her on too much, and then it would maybe made them ending even more <laughs> more hard to take. I mean, it's already tough to take, yeah. but uh, yeah. It, yeah, if they're if they're if there is something from that, uh, and I'd be remiss, we we have to talk about Kevin Spacey. He, um, oh you know, God, I'm trying Notwithstanding <laughs> what what he turned into, but uh, yeah. just looking at his performance in this film, it is tremendous. It's per- well, so uh, just to state the obvious, um, yeah. his his performance in this film was really really good. Yeah, uh, and really creepy and really effective, and without. Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, and Kevin Spacey all performing uh, really, really carefully thought out um, performances. This is something that could have failed miserably in that like final act. Sure. And it doesn't. It it just kind of goes perfectly. There's so many ways this film could have failed. And yeah, it kind of doesn't. You have three really good actors turning in top-notch performances now that said the, the obvious um <laughs> statement is that now watching it uh <laughs> it's it's even more unsettling and creepy to watch right. him um, i'm not terribly familiar with the allegations uh mm. the specifics of the allegations that were levied against him um but that aside uh i think it's enough that in the court of public opinion he's pretty much been condemned and sure convicted so it's impossible i think to watch this movie now without uh you know if you have any kind of knowledge of that without that kind of inflecting it and it's it was creepier this time knowing that and seeing that and being a little bit uncomfortable wondering you know is this uh an actor playing a villain in film or is this an actor identifying a little bit too much with yes. the villain, you know, is, yes. is it villain in film or is it villain in real life? Where's the crossover? How is an audience member? Can I, you know, watch this and uh, I don't even know how, how to feel right. about it. Or I wonder, you know, what other people might feel about it. Does it in, in any way, um, dampen or spoil the, the legacy of this film because, mm-hmm. you know, of wow. what he's, uh, accused of doing and i think uh, in this case it, it works because you already hate him in the movie so you can almost <laughs> use that uh to hate him even more i think where it's toughest is someone like woody allen uh where you know mm-hmm. god i mean you you look at manhattan the movie manhattan and i don't want to go off on too much of a tangent but you look at manhattan yeah. and you look at his personal life and you're like oh well yeah this this totally makes sense now and i have a tough time watching this film and i have yeah. a tough time watching any of his films now anymore especially after the the recent documentary and so yeah i think um it's tricky this thing and i feel this you know almost the same way with with roman polanski you know the same thing with uh sure some of his films. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very <laughs> challenging and difficult topic. Um, to, uh, but yeah, and I hate to, I don't want this to be, you know, just about Kevin Spacey and his personal life, but, uh, you know, he is part mm-hmm. of the film. So it's, you know, it's definitely worth talking yeah. about. Yeah. I think I'm still working through how, uh, I feel about it, but it just to say, as I already said, uh, it did make it uh, creepier for me, but what I didn't say was I was less sure <laughs> 
<laughs> who I was rooting for in right. the end. Um, I was. <laughs> I that brings up a great question. Would you have done what Brad Pitt did, or could you have? Could you have not? Could you have yep, had the, I would have. the willpower? You would have yep. done what exactly nope, he did. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have had the willpower. I would yep. have shot earlier than he did, and more times. And stop. I, I hate to say that, but um, as you know, being a new parent, and I've had sure. plenty of time in the last like three months to do lots of cuddling with my daughter and yep. uh, I just my my gut reaction is I no no question I would not have I I think I would have gone into a primal rage instantly sure yeah absolutely and uh, and that's why the movie I think works so much because I think mm-hmm. most people would have felt exactly what he did so you know that's yeah. and, and there's that weird moral dilemma like you know absolutely. should he you know and then you get to the point where and then they leave the ending ambiguous so yeah I mean which in many ways, I know my dad loves ambiguous endings because you can take it mm-hmm. wherever you want in your own mind. So, yeah. But that's the thing yeah. about this film is it doesn't just leave Brad Pitt's character guilty. No. Like you said, if, if we root for Brad Pitt, the audience leaves and they have to you, you have to kind of uh, atone for or at least kind of mediate your own guilt in like rooting for him and right. justifying that kind of action um, uh, for yourself. And that's not that's not easy. So there aren't really any easy outs from that. Um, and so the film doesn't really have to try to give you any and probably shouldn't no. dampen um, that kind of dilemma, which is great uh, mm-hmm. that Hollywood was able to produce something that would even put in an audience in that uh, sticky of um, uh, self-reflexive kind of uh, moral uh, situation. Sure. They'll do anything to get away from that and, you know, tie everything up with a nice, yes, yes, whatever, you know, even if it, even if either, usually the way it, it plays out is we'll put the audience in that position for a moment, you know, mm-hmm. and then tie it up yeah, where I see this happening. Most often is like, you know, they'll kill off a character and you think, Oh, you get to mourn the character and you feel sad. And, you know, think about what you f- would feel like in that situation. Mm-hmm. If you that person or that pet or whatever and then they're alive and you're like oh i don't have to feel that way uh, it's <laughs> yeah. happy endings you know de- even in even like family and pet deaths in film they just go away unless it's old yeller um oh, <laughs> it's which still scars yeah. me to this day like it's, it's something about right. animals animals and children that's always been the 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 no-nos and uh well and the, the other thing about it they screen test all of these films especially more, more modern films and to make sure that they get things right yeah. and and so very rarely are they going to release a, a film that they haven't uh you know gone through the ringer a little bit although i'm i'm gonna disagree with you slightly on what you just mm-hmm. said uh, you you just a phrase, just a phrase. That's all. Uh, you said that they put to get it right. I, I don't know. That oh well, that, yeah, that's true. Well, what they feel is right. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I, okay. I think I yeah. think a lot of directors and screenwriters uh, would like to go the um, the more artistic route, and then eventually, when, when they try to film it, and then the, you have the studios and the you know who's backing it financially, and yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's a difference between uh, quote unquote right for. Um, the director and the screenwriter compared to what the studio really wants. For sure. Yeah, no, totally. So you obviously would recommend this movie. How often do you go back to it without, you know, one of your podcasting friends asking you to, to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd have to say this isn't a frequent watch. Mm-hmm. I imagine this is pro. I imagine that folks who really like this is probably 
I mean, this is a guilty pleasure. Sure. Right? This is this is a guilty pleasure film. I don't, I don't watch it often, for sure. I think I've only seen it a handful of times. It it packs a powerful punch. You know, it it's does. Not something that um, is easy to watch. Uh, it's entertaining, certainly, um, but a lot of it is really really kind of tough. I am glad that. Um, uh, you wanted to talk about this one and mm-hmm. that I did rewatch it again recently because, you know, for the reasons that we, we've discussed and, you know, some other, I did, I, other reasons, I did find it really, really interesting to see it again, um, this long after, uh, with a different set of, um, eyes and a different perspective on film in general. It, it was a really interesting, uh, watch. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm a big fan of Brad Pitt and especially what he, you know, evolved into. And so that that's also the what's fun about re- revisiting movies from the past is you also see how certain actors have grown and whatnot. And so that that was amusing to me. And and again, I could pretty much watch anything that Morgan Freeman's you know is in. So just for their performances alone is is worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as always, Malin, thank you so much. And we'll be talking together, you know, real soon, I hope. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.